very much appreciate the good prayer that Brother Jabin has offered, appreciate his uh, friendship, and um, appreciate all of your prayers, and uh, glad to be with you this weekend. Uh, would you turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 16? Acts chapter 16. Uh, this uh, chapter tells us a little bit about the uh, establishment of the church at Philippi. Now, uh, you may know that the Apostle Paul wrote letters to seven churches that are recorded for us in the scriptures. And of those seven churches, uh, every one of those letters has a little different tone or a little different flavor. Some of those churches uh, required quite a bit of correction. Some of those churches, like Corinth, had a lot of problems that the Apostle Paul had to address and deal with. And so some of those letters were uh, pretty grievous and, and uh it was not a pleasant thing for him to have to undertake some of the things that uh, he had to undertake in his labors there. On the other hand, the church at Philippi, when, when Paul writes the letter to the Philippians, that letter is an overwhelmingly positive letter. When you read through it, you can tell that the Apostle Paul had a very special and very deep love for the church at Philippi. Uh, they really didn't have very many problems compared to most of the other churches that are addressed in, in the New Testament. They had one problem where there were two sisters who had a falling out. But other than that, um, there really weren't very many issues that this church had. This was a bright spot in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And uh, he had a special fondness for this church. Um, in the first few verses of Philippians chapter 1, he, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of thee. Every time he thought about the, the brothers and sisters that he had in Philippi, he just thanked God for them. And he talked about the joy that he felt for the fellowship that they had in the gospel. So this was a very special church. And I'd like to read here in Acts chapter 16 about how that church uh, was started by the providence of God. We'll begin reading in Acts chapter 16 in verse 4. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. After they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. So this tells us a little bit about the travels and the labors of Paul and Silas uh, as they were traveling throughout that region of the world at that time, uh, going from place to place and preaching the gospel. And we're told here that they uh, were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. 
It also says that they essayed to go into Bithynia. In other words, they wanted to or tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. You know, there have been some people who have mistakenly gotten the impression that primitive Baptists are opposed to people traveling overseas to preach the gospel. Uh, That's not the case. Primitive Baptists have never been opposed to ministers traveling anywhere to preach the gospel to God's children wherever they can be found. Uh, the, the, the only uh, distinction is, the only difference is, and, and where there have been uh, divisions in the past was not whether or not it was appropriate for men to travel overseas to preach the gospel. Uh, the main point of contention was who has the authority to send? Now, some folks say that uh, a mission board or a committee or some, some uh, outside institution has the authority to send people overseas to <coughs> preach the gospel to people. Primitive Baptists have always held uh, that it is appropriate for, for ministers to travel wherever the Holy Spirit leads them to go, wherever a man is, is impressed to go preach the gospel, to God's people wherever they can be found, but that it's not the, the responsibility and it's not the uh, right or it's not the authority of a committee or a board or any other institution uh, to send anyone to preach the gospel anywhere. It's the prerogative of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one who has the authority to send a minister of the gospel anywhere. And so as Paul and Silas were traveling throughout uh, this region of the world at that time, uh, we find that, that uh, there were certain places that they traveled and the Lord blessed them. The Lord guided them to go those places. But, uh, but the Holy Ghost uh, forbade them to go preach in Asia. Uh, we'll also find out that they wanted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Now God had children in both of those places. God had lots of children in the region of Asia, and God had plenty of people in Bithynia. And we'll find later on that the gospel did get to those places, and there were churches established in Asia. Uh, and, and we'll find that uh, later on when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, uh, he mentions some folks there in, I'm, I'm, excuse me, that's not Paul. When Peter addresses the, the strangers and pilgrims who were scattered about, he specifically mentions the, the saints that were in Bithynia. So God had people in both of those places, but it was not the, the will of the Holy Spirit to send uh, Paul and Silas to go preach there at this time. That should also tell us that uh, the gospel is not involved and it has never been God's design for the gospel for it to be involved in saving people. Because if that were the case, then it would have made no sense for the Holy Spirit to forbid Paul and Silas to go preach to people if that's what was required for their eternal salvation. But by the sovereignty of God, uh, the Holy Spirit would, would not permit them to go preach in Asia or Bithynia. But in verse 9, it says that Paul had a vision in the night. And in that vision, it says that there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him or begged him saying come over into Macedonia and help us and after he had seen the vision 
Immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called for us to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we, and we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. So Paul had this vision of a man from Macedonia who asked him to come, come to, to Macedonia to preach the gospel and help us. But Paul and Silas and Luke and, and perhaps others arrive at Macedonia after Paul has this vision, but they don't find that man there. They don't even find any men yet. They find a group of women who were gathered at the riverside on the Sabbath day at a place where it says prayer was wont to be made. Evidently, it was, it was their custom, it was their habit that this group of women would gather there by the riverside uh, at least every Sabbath day, maybe more often than that, and they would gather there together and pray by the river. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. It says that Lydia was a seller of purple. Now you may know that in the ancient world, purple was one of the hardest colors to come by. If you saw somebody wearing purple clothes, that was a strong indication that that person was rich. Poor people didn't have purple clothes. That's why purple was the color of royalty. Uh, purple is always associated with royalty because uh, the royalty were one of the few people who could afford to wear purple clothing because the process by which uh, fabric was dyed purple was a very expensive process. The dye uh, for purple dye was very rare. It was hard to come by and uh, therefore it was very, very expensive. And so when we read that Lydia was a seller of purple, that tells us that not only did she sell uh, clothing that was extremely expensive, she had to be pretty well off herself. Lydia was a very successful businesswoman. This would be somebody who, who owns a high-end boutique in Manhattan or Paris or somewhere like that. Uh, that's the uh, that's that would be the equivalent of Lydia today. Um, she had a very successful business. She was a dealer of very fine, very expensive things. That was the circle she traveled in. She was she was upper class. Uh, she always, I'm sure, had had the finest clothes to wear wherever she went. Probably always decked out. I mean, she was. She was part of the high society in Philippi. And not only that, we read that she was from the city of Thyatira. 
So uh, she lived in Philippi, but she wasn't originally from there. She moved to Philippi from Thyatira. Now, uh, if you uh, are familiar with, with the New Testament, you know that later on there would be a church established in Thyatira because that was one of the seven churches that was addressed in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, and Thyatira was a relatively wealthy city. That was a prosperous city. And so Lydia was from Thyatira, but she's living in Philippi. She's made a very good living for herself, uh, felt, uh, selling fancy clothes. She's, she's high society. She's upper class. But it says that she worshipped God. Lydia worshipped God. Now that means... When it says that she worshipped God, that means that even though she was a Gentile, she was not Jewish, she was not uh, a citizen of Israel, even though she was a Gentile, she had become exposed to the Jewish religion and uh, she had come to believe in the God of Israel. She wasn't raised Jewish, she wasn't, uh, she wasn't of the nation of Israel, but she was a Gentile who had come to believe in the God of Israel. Uh, she studied the scriptures of the Old Testament. And so she had, uh, she had a knowledge of the truth, but her knowledge was incomplete. She knew about the God of the Old Testament, but she had not yet heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. She was worshiping God in the, in the light that she had with the information that she had, but her information was incomplete. And so here she is, this, this high society woman in the city of Philippi. She's gathered with a group of other women on the, on the riverside here on the Sabbath day. And this group of, of preachers, this group of old Baptist preachers comes to preach to her. And these other women that are gathered with her. She's worshiping God, she, she's, she's uh, in prayer, and the Bible says that she heard us whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. The most important words in this entire passage that we've read so far are those words, five words, whose heart the Lord opened. Because if the Lord had not opened her heart, she never would have attended unto the things that were spoken unto her of Paul. She never would have responded to the message of the gospel had it not been for the fact that before the preachers got there, before the gospel was preached to her, before she ever heard the name Jesus Christ, the Lord already opened her heart. Amen. She didn't respond to the gospel because Paul was such an outstanding preacher. Actually, the Bible seems to indicate he wasn't all that much of an outstanding preacher, at least probably not by most people's standards. Paul admitted in his own words that he was, uh, you know, he would go places that, that they had read his letters and he had never, they had never met him in person. And uh, he said that uh, when he got there, people would say, you know, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his, his speech is rude and contemptible. He talked about how uh, he didn't come with man's wisdom or with, with, uh, with, with fancy words, you know, articulate speeches. He wasn't, he wasn't a great orator by most people's standards. 
So that's not why Lydia responded to the message that he preached to her. It had nothing to do with Paul. It had nothing to do uh, with anything like that. It had everything to do with the fact that the Lord opened her heart. And because the Lord opened her heart first, as a result of that, she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Anytime you find anybody who responds to the message of the gospel, if the message of the gospel resonates in your heart, it's because the Lord got there first before you ever heard the gospel and opened your heart in the first place. So the Lord opened her heart that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us saying, if ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. That's one reason I know she was a good primitive Baptist. She, she met these new brothers in Christ and she said, you're coming to my house. You're, you're staying with me. And I, I can only imagine what she fed them the next morning for breakfast. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. So after they continued there in Philippi, they've met Lydia, they've met this group of women, but now they're about to meet somebody else who is about as different from Lydia as you can get. I mean, this next person we're going to meet, we don't know her name, but she is about as different from Lydia as you could possibly imagine. It says that there was a damsel that means that she was a young girl who was a slave. This, we don't know exactly how old she was, but she was the, it seems to indicate that she was pretty young. And she was possessed with a spirit of divination. In other words, she had a spirit of sorcery. She, she had some sort of an unclean spirit in her. She was possessed with, with an unclean spirit. And this spirit... Uh, was a spirit of divination or, or sorcery or witchcraft. And she brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. So she was a slave and her masters made a lot of money off of her because this spirit of divination that possessed her gave her the ability to tell fortunes. She was a fortune teller. And so she made a lot of money as a fortune teller because of this spirit of divination, this, this uh, unclean spirit that possessed her. And so uh, she, was, she made her living as a fortune teller, but her masters got all the money. So her, her slave masters uh, had a pretty good deal going. There was this unclean spirit that was possessing this young girl. It, she could tell people's fortunes uh, and then they would take the money. It was a pretty good deal for them. But it says that the same, that same girl, followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Now that statement is true. Uh, this girl spoke the truth whether she understood what she was saying or not. But it says that she did this for many days. This did she many days. 
But Paul, being grieved, in other words, he was disturbed by what was going on here. He was disturbed by this, this spirit of divination that possessed her. Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. She, this girl is following around Paul and Silas and Luke, and, and she's just shrieking at them for several days. She follows them around Philippi for several days, just crying out, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And after a while, Paul is so disturbed, he's so grieved by this, that he says, I command thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace and unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. You see, once Paul cast out that spirit of divination by the authority of the name of Jesus Christ, those slave masters realized that their meal ticket was gone. Because now they've, they've been using this to, to make a lot of money for themselves, and now their, their meal ticket has dried up. They don't, they're not going to have this, this uh, source of making money anymore. And so they're upset, and they want to get Paul and these other preachers uh, kicked out of the city or thrown into jail. And that's exactly what happens. They said these men are Jews, and they're teaching customs that are unlawful for us as Romans to practice. And it says that the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Now we're about to learn about the third person uh, that Paul, Silas, and Luke encountered when they got to Philippi. We've already heard about Lydia. We've already heard about this this damsel, this slave girl. But now we're about to read about somebody else. And we've already sung about this man tonight. The first song we sang when we got here this morning. There's a line in that, or this evening. There's a line in that song that says, Is there here a trembling jailer seeking peace and filled with fear? Paul and Silas, after they are arrested, and they're beaten severely. They, it says that they, uh, they laid many stripes upon them, so they're beaten to the point that they have open wounds. After they've been arrested and beaten publicly, it says that they cast them into prison and charged the jailer to keep them safely. Who having received such a charge thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. This Philippian jailer is charged with the responsibility of keeping Paul and Silas in prison. 
keeping them uh, safely. But when he get when he gets these men into his jail, it says that he immediately thrusts them into the inner prison. He puts them in the darkest, deepest part of the prison. He puts them uh, in in the place that had the least sunlight, the least air. It was the most isolated part of the jail, far away from everybody else. This was the this was this was uh, this, this was like maximum security. He's putting them in solitary confinement. Except it's not solitary because Paul and Silas are there together and the Lord is with both of them. So he puts them in the worst part of the prison that nobody wants to be in. And it says that he made their feet fast in the stocks. Now, it says that he, he, uh, he, he firmly or tightly put their feet in stocks. Now, he didn't have to do that. They didn't charge him to do that. They, they just said, keep them safely. But he, he went above and beyond, and he, he puts their feet in stocks. That was a, a mild form of torture. So this, there's no indication here that this Philippian jailer is, is showing mercy whatsoever. He's told to, uh, to, to keep Paul and Silas safely. He's doing his job as the, as the jailer, as, the, as the, the warden of the prison, so to speak. He's got a job to do, and he's doing it. In fact, he's, he's actually doing a little more than he had to do. He's, he's being pretty, pretty rough with them. Uh, you know, they had open wounds, and he doesn't even tend to their wounds. He doesn't wash out their wounds. He does later. Uh, but but not until after after uh, he learns about Jesus Christ. That's later on. So there's no indication here that this Philippian jailer uh, is merciful toward these men. I mean, he, he's participating in their persecution. Now... Um, We've already talked about the fact that Lydia, she was upper class. I mean, she was high society. That slave girl, she was not just low class, she was no class. I mean, she was a slave. She didn't have anything to her name. This Philippian jailer would have been comfortably middle class because um, jobs like this would have been uh, given in that period of time Jobs like this were almost always given to, uh, to former soldiers, Roman soldiers, who were a little too old to be in, in active duty in the military. And so this was kind of a retirement plan for Roman soldiers. So this Philippian jailer probably was ex-military. He was probably a former Ro Roman soldier, and now this is his retirement plan. And it's a, it's a pretty good retirement plan if you're a former uh, Roman soldier because, you know, it's a, it's a cushy job. There's one downside. If you're a jailer in Philippi or in any other uh, Roman colony, that was a good, comfortable job to have unless one of your uh, inmates got out. If you lost an inmate, then whatever punishment that inmate was going to get, then the jailer would get that punishment, usually death. 
And so being a jailer for a Roman colony was a pretty good gig unless one of your inmates got out, in which case you were going to die. Well, Paul and Silas were in uh, this prison, and it says at midnight, verse 25, at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. Now, I have heard about prayer meetings that used to happen not too long ago, but I understand that it was common in some areas when people went to a prayer meeting for rain, they would bring their umbrella because that was the, they had a full expectation that if they were praying for rain, they had every expectation and every confidence in God that God would answer their prayer. And so they came prepared for God to answer their prayer right then. Well, Paul and Silas are, are singing at midnight. They're singing praises to God and they're praying. And while they're having this prayer meeting, just the two of them together with the Lord, God answers their prayer in about as powerful a way as you could imagine. There's a great earthquake the foundations of the prison uh, begin to shake and all of the doors were opened. And not only were the doors open, everybody who was chained up with bands and chains, their bands were loosened. And so we would expect that after all, Paul and Silas had been praying, probably praying, that it doesn't tell us what they were praying specifically, but it would seem natural they would be praying that God would deliver them from this unjust persecution that they're experiencing. Uh, they have been wrongfully imprisoned. Uh, they've done nothing wrong, but they've been wrongfully imprisoned and persecuted. They're praying and singing praises to God. And during the middle of their prayer, during the middle of their worship service, God opens the prison doors and, and loosens their chains. And so you would think, if that were me, I won't speak for you, but if that were me, as soon as the doors opened and my chains came off, I'd be out of there. But that's not what happened. It says, The keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors opened, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. This, this Philippian jailer, he sees that the prison doors are open and his natural assumption is they've all escaped, which means I'm in trouble. I'm a dead man walking. The Romans are about to put me to death, so I might as well go ahead and, and beat them to it. And so he took out his sword and was about to kill himself knowing that uh, if he didn't do it, he was going to get killed. Knowing that, uh, that he was going to be in, in, in deep trouble, he was going to be killed uh, for letting these prisoners out on his watch. But before he does, it says, Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling 
and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now put yourself in this jailer's shoes. You have just gone through the, I mean, it's scary enough, I can imagine, to go through an earthquake. I've never been through one, but I can imagine that an earthquake in the middle of the night would be very frightening. So first of all, you've gone through an earthquake. That's disorienting. That's scary. And then, after you come to your senses and the earthquake is over, you see that the doors of your prison have, have opened and the bands have, have uh, fallen off of all the prisoners. And you think that, that you're dead. You think that, that you're about to be put to death, so you decide you're going to kill yourself. And after that, after you've had this very frightening, disorienting experience, uh, you're, you're at a point of, of desperation. You're so desperate that you're ready to die. You're ready to kill yourself. He's so desperate. He's so, he's so afraid. And then he sees that Paul and Silas, and for that matter, all these other prisoners, are still there by choice. They had an opportunity to escape, and they had a right to escape because, after all, they were there, uh, they were there unjustly. And not only that, they were Roman citizens, which we find out later in the chapter, that, that uh, they had a right to a trial. They, their rights had been violated in the process of this whole ordeal, but they didn't. They didn't. Uh, they didn't plead their rights as Roman citizens. They didn't. Uh, they didn't uh, go through all that, even though they had the opportunity and the and the right to escape. They chose to stay there, and so the the jailer is thinking. Why on earth are you still here? I mean, he's glad they're still there because that means he's not going to die. But he's thinking, why on earth have you stayed? Don't you see that the, the doors to the prison are open? Don't you see that you don't have chains and, and bands and stocks on your feet anymore? Why on earth are you staying here by choice? And after all, he had just heard them not a few, not not long before that, singing in the middle of the night from the darkest, deepest, coldest part of the prison. This Philippian jailer does not know what in the world is going on, but he knows there's something big happening here. There's something here that he doesn't understand yet, but he wants to. What is it about these two men that even though they had just been unjustly uh, arrested, beaten. Uh, they have open wounds from the beatings that they've received. They've been thrown into prison unjustly. They're wrongfully imprisoned. They're in this, this terrible suffering in the darkest, coldest, deepest part of the prison. But they're still singing praises to their God. What could cause that? What could make people behave like that? And what's more than that, now they have the opportunity to escape 
But if they escape, it means that this Philippian jailer dies. And these two men, there's something about them that they would rather this man be uh, they would rather this man's life be saved than for them to walk free. Even though they had the opportunity and the and the right to go free, they would rather uh, they would rather sacrifice their their own their own rights as Roman citizens and and their own convenience and their own comfort. They would rather sacrifice themselves in a manner of speaking in order to save the life of the man who had been persecuting them. The Philippian jailer had been participating in their persecution and now they're sacrificing their own comfort, their own convenience, their own freedom in order to save the life of this man who had been involved in their persecution and involved in in causing their suffering. What could make a person do that? He wants to find out. And so he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I think we all understand that the Bible teaches more than one type of salvation. Uh, There is eternal salvation, and then there is timely or temporal salvation. And I'm afraid that if this had been me, and the Philippian jailer had asked me, what must I do to be saved? I would have backed up and gone to Romans chapter 8 or Ephesians chapter 1 and said, hold on just a minute, brother. What kind of salvation are you talking about? You don't have to do anything to be saved. Now, that would have been true. But Paul and Silas understood that wasn't the time for that. (laughs) Uh, They'll get to that later. I have no doubt that they got to that later. But they're in the middle of a crisis. (laughs) They're in the middle of an earthquake They've just had an earthquake. uh, Here they are. It's the middle of the night. This this jailer is trembling in fear. He he is in a terrible crisis. He was about to take his own life. And so Paul and Silas, they didn't give him a, a doctrinal lecture yet. I'm sure they did that later. They didn't give him a doctrinal lecture. They simply gave him an answer, and it was a true answer. He said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. When the Philippian jailer believed on the Lord Jesus Christ that night, in the middle of the night, standing in the rubble of that prison, let me tell you, he was saved. He wasn't saved for heaven by believing. But he experienced a whole lot of peace and a whole lot of comfort and he was relieved of a lot of fear and confusion when he began to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't saved for heaven by his belief, but I promise you uh, he was saved from a lot of trouble and from a lot of ignorance and from a lot of fear once he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. They told him the reason that we could sacrifice ourselves to save your life, the reason that we could could sacrifice our own freedom and our own comfort and our own convenience uh, for, for your sake 
even though you had been persecuting us just a few minutes earlier, was because we have a Savior who, when he was being unjustly, uh, uh, when he was being unjustly beaten, when he was being unjustly crucified by the hands of the Roman authorities and by the Jewish high priests and and uh, elders, when he was suffering unjustly, when he was suffering for for crimes that he did not commit, he didn't retaliate. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They said, we serve a God who, when we were yet enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. That's why we could love our enemies. That's why we can pray for those who, who persecute us. And so they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. He didn't wash out their wounds when they first got to his prison, but now he does. Now he begins to show them compassion and tenderness and love. He washed their stripes and was baptized. He and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Now, uh, for the sake of time, we'll skip down to the, to the very end of this chapter. And in verse 40, the last verse of this chapter, it says that they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. They go back to Lydia's house where they were earlier in this chapter. And Lydia, uh, you need to understand that in the first several centuries of the church, they didn't have church buildings like we have today. They, don't, they didn't have meeting houses like we had today. So they met in, in people's homes. And so Lydia was the, the woman who hosted the church in her house. Uh, the church in Philippi in its infancy, in the very early stages of the church at Philippi when they were first getting started, it, the church in Philippi met for worship in her house. And so after, uh, after Paul and, and Silas are released from custody, it says that they went out of the prison and it doesn't, it doesn't indicate who they is, but I just kind of have a feeling that the Philippian jailer was, was there with him. He, he was baptized, so I have no doubt that, that, uh, that this is the church that he was baptized into. They went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. Now, I told you earlier how special the church at Philippi was to the Apostle Paul. Paul had a very special fondness for this church. He had a, a special connection, a special fellowship with this church. Uh, there was something about them that just, that just captured his heart. But Paul, before his experience on the uh, on the Damascus Road, you also know that he was, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews by his own admission. I mean, he was as Jewish as they come. Uh, 
not only was he a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul was, was about as steeped in the Jewish religion and the Jewish culture as you could imagine. And you may know that there is a common prayer that was recited by almost all Jewish men, especially men of the Pharisee sect, in this period of time. It was uh, a prayer that's recorded in the Talmud. It's called the Three Blessings, and it was, it was uh, recorded to be recited every morning by Jewish men. You, you might be familiar with it. It goes like this. Men would get up in the morning and they would say, I thank thee, God, that thou hast not made me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that Paul recited that prayer, but it's very likely that he did based on the period of time that he lived in, the culture that he lived in, it's very likely that Paul, before his experience on the road to Damascus, probably would have recited that prayer at some point in his life. I thank thee, God, that thou hast not made me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. If he didn't recite the prayer, he probably at least had that attitude because that was a widespread attitude among Jewish men at that period of time. but I bet he didn't recite that prayer anymore after he had this experience in Philippi. Because who did God use in God's providence to establish the church at Philippi? Who were the first three people that God sent Paul to preach to in the city of Philippi? A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Now, Lydia and the slave girl and the Philippian jailer, all three of them had their lives changed by what they experienced in the 16th chapter of Acts. All three of them had their lives changed by hearing the gospel preached. But I kind of have a feeling that Paul had his life changed too. Those three folks that, that he preached to had a total, uh, had a total change, a total uh, uh, change in their outlook, in their, in their disposition, on their outlook on life because uh, of what they experienced when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. But sometimes we preachers, in the process of preaching the gospel, the Lord can, can work on us too. <laughs> The Lord works on us. I mean, we, we need preaching too, and, and, and the, the, the response that we get from the folks that we preach to uh, can, can uh, have an effect on us. It can correct us sometimes, uh, and, and I believe that that's probably what happened to the Apostle Paul here. If he had any residual prejudice against women, slaves, and Gentiles, I think that the Lord did away with that in the 16th chapter of Acts because God by his providence used a woman named Lydia, a little slave girl, and a Gentile Philippian jailer to constitute the church that Paul held so dear and that Paul loved so much. You know, that should also tell us something about, about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those three people didn't have anything in common 
one was upper class, one was middle class, one was the bottom of the lowest class. One was an Asian. She was from Thyatira. That was in Turkey in Asia. Uh, one was a Greek. Well, we actually don't know where the slave girl was from, but she was in Greece. She could have been from anywhere. And one was a Roman. They were different in their, in their class, in their, in their uh, economic class. They were different racially, ethnically. Uh, they had nothing in common. These people would have never probably even encountered each other. They probably would have never even met much less would they have begun to worship together in Lydia's home. Much less would they have, have uh, begun to have the, the close fellowship that they had through the, the bonds of the gospel. You know, some of y'all are some of my dearest friends. Y'all probably wouldn't even like me if we didn't have the gospel in common. If we didn't have the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Him crucified and resurrected, we probably wouldn't get along. Y'all wouldn't like me. I promise you wouldn't. And I probably wouldn't like some of y'all either. But we have something in common that transcends whatever, our, whatever differences we might have. Uh, whatever, whatever sports teams that you cheer for that, that the other person on, on the same pew as you uh, might hate, uh, whatever your political views are that somebody else might not have, whatever your, whatever your profession, whatever your class, whatever your background. I mean, we have people from Indiana here. Yankees and Southerners getting along because we have the gospel in common. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest unifying force that the world has ever known. The blood, you know, people sometimes say that, that blood is thicker than water, and that's true. You know, and, and sometimes it's true in not such a good way because, you know, people who have family ties can, can be kind of, kind of uh, clannish. But if we're in the right spirit, we might have family ties in the church. And it might be true that blood is thicker than water, but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is thicker than the blood that we have with our kinfolks. The woman, the slave, and the Gentile, and probably others that aren't recorded here in Acts chapter 16. That's, that's how this church was established. They went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. I appreciate your good patience and attention. May God bless you. Amen.